Hello and welcome to the podcast version of the Love and Science radio show from BCFM. This episode was first broadcast on January the 23rd, 2017. Love and Science. Welcome to uh, the late starting uh, Love and Science and uh, I'm afraid it's just me on my own today. I'm all alone. I would have a violin playing but uh, uh, Andrew's going to be back with us uh, next week. He can't be uh, with us this week uh, but the show will go, <laughs> go on as planned, believe it, believe it or not. And um, w- one of the first stories that I wanted to uh, talk about was that, uh, of course, uh, it isn't news that you'll be surprised by but Donald Trump, of course, uh, was inaugurated uh, on uh, Friday, on the 20th, and uh, the very next day uh, there was an enormous uh, protest, uh, a, um, a very large uh, women's march uh, against Donald Trump. In fact, there were massive protests not only in Washington, uh, D.C., uh, but uh, all over the world, including here in, uh, in Bristol. Um, and uh, people just wanted to find ways to make their... Uh, their make their feelings known. Uh, a, a lot of uh, people who uh, joined the protest in Washington, D.C., uh, bore slogans and signs saying, stand up for science and science does not discriminate. And it turned out that large numbers of uh, scientists uh, had actually decided to uh, join uh, in the march, particularly uh, female scientists um, who wanted to uh, protest. Their, their worry is that uh, the the new uh, incumbent of the White House and uh, his administration are not uh, supporting uh, science properly, uh, as some of the slogans said they're not supporting evidence-based anything. Now, uh, I've not got a, a story here to uh, to kind of uh, balance that up. Uh, I'm personally uh, perfectly happy to tell you about this story. And um, basically, uh, there was an open letter uh, about diversity and equality for women that has more than 13,500 uh, signatures uh, on it um, in this particular story um, who are trying to build networks between women scientists in different countries uh, and uh, these people participated in women's uh, march events all over the world uh, on Saturday 20, the 21st of uh, January. Uh, this particular group says it has 150 to 200 scientists at the Washington uh, DC march and uh, another organisation, the Association for Women in Science, had at least 30 uh, researchers uh, marching. And uh, the uh, concerns are all about uh, proper funding for science, big concerns about things like uh, climate science, and also quite a lot of uh, concern about linking uh, vaccination uh, to uh, autism uh, where of course there is there is no link between vaccination and autism and of course not vaccinating children uh, against certain diseases uh, has already cost us uh, dearly uh, as that uh, rumor spread so uh, 
uh, there's all kinds of action going on uh, trying to say to the new president, Mr Trump, uh, just to go really rather uh, carefully. Now, one of the uh, rather excellent uh, features that we had uh, towards the end of last year, right, right just before uh, Christmas, uh, was Beth Shapiro, who's an American evolutionary uh, m uh, molecular biologist, is an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and uh, Evolutionary uh, Biology at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And our very own Andrew Glester uh, caught up with her. By the way, when I looked her up, uh, I was very excited to hear that her birthday is on the 14th of January, uh, which must make her a very excellent person because that's the same birthday as mine. And Andrew was asking her all about the whole business of cloning. As you'll know, the whole premise of the films, uh, the film and the subsequent films associated with Jurassic Park are all about the possibility of cloning uh, and could you clone a dinosaur. And uh, this is something which she's quite expert in and uh, this is what she told Andrew. It's not possible to clone dinosaurs, and that's because cloning requires a living cell, and there's never going to be a living cell for a dinosaur. There's also never going to be a living cell for anything that has been extinct for a long time. So if one really is going to resurrect a species that has been extinct, it has to A, not have been extinct for very long, B, have surviving bits of DNA, C, have a closely related genome that you might be able to use to piece together the surviving bits of DNA into an actual genome sequence, and maybe C, have the capacity to go through and uh, use genome editing technologies to swap out bits of the thing that it's related to that's still alive with bits of the thing that you're trying to bring back. You're never going to be able to create something that's 100% identical to a species that is extinct or has been extinct for a long time. Because even if you could swap out every bit of the DNA in, for example, an Asian elephant genome for a mammoth genome sequence, you would still then have to use an elephant to make this thing come alive. And by virtue of developing within an elephant, being raised by elephants, etc., you would see that the gene expression, even of those mammoth-like genes, might change so that it ended up looking like an elephant. Is there any reason why we would want to do de-extinction? When I ask people why they are thinking of bringing any particular species back to life, the reasons vary from I really like to see that species to maybe there's some scientific reason to bring that back. To my mind, the, uh, the best reasons to want to bring something back to life have to do with restoring interactions between species that might be missing because that species has gone extinct and because uh, reinstating those ecological interactions might then have some overall positive impact on the entire ecosystem system, not just on the species that's extinct. For example, there are little things called kangaroo rats that are going extinct across the kind of desert southwest of the United States. And when they do, these guys are little environmental engineers. They burrow throughout the ground, digging up the soil. Uh, when they disappear, there's a domino effect of extinction where the birds that used to come don't anymore because there's not the same diversity of plants. The small mammals that used to come don't anymore because there are no more burrows that they can use to, to, to hide out. 
And replacing these guys might actually be able to restore function to that ecosystem and stop that domino effect of extinction. Of course, it might be even easier just to take a closely related species of kangaroo rat and stick it in its place rather than spending the time trying to re-engineer something that's very closely related to something that's still alive. That was uh, Beth Shapiro uh, talking all about uh, dinosaurs. Now, um, uh, should you be worried? Uh, should you be uh, concerned about eating uh, things like toast and roast potatoes and all of that sort of thing? Bread, chips and potatoes should be cooked to a golden yellow colour rather than brown to reduce our intake of a chemical which could cause cancer. Now, actually, this is um, an old story. It's at least 20 years uh, or more uh, since we were uh, talking about this. Um, it's, it's a chemical called acrylamide. And it's produced when starchy foods are roasted, fried or grilled for too long at high temperatures. So if you've got a, um, a chip fetish, uh, perhaps you need to be a little bit careful. It's not just about putting on weight, but you take in large amounts of this chemical called uh, acrylamide. And um, cancer... So, so sorry, this is the Food St uh, Standards Agency who are saying this, the FSA. Uh, they're recommended carefully following cooking instructions. I don't know where, what, what would that be, Delia, how to cook a chip or something like that. Because um, I don't think potatoes come with cooking instructions on them, uh, nor does bread. Uh, but uh, it says carefully follow cooking instructions and avoid browning. Um, Cancer Research UK say, however, that the link between acrylamide uh, promoting cancer is not proven in humans. That's quite quite a, a, an interesting thing. Um, going back to the uh, Food Standards Agency, they're saying that in potato that potatoes and parsnips should not be kept in the fridge because uh, if you keep uh, uh, potatoes and parsnips in the fridge they actually increase their sugar levels and if you increase the sugar levels that's what goes brown when you get when you cook and it increases the amount of acrylamide it's actually the burning of sugar that produces uh, acrylamide um, so uh, should we give up toast? <laughs> so the BBC have uh, got a Q&A uh, um, in, in, uh, in their story because uh, they're one of the people who've covered this. You'll see this all over the place. Uh, should we give up toast then? Well, their answer is acrylamide is present in many different types of food and is a natural byproduct of the cooking process. Uh, the highest levels of the substance are found in foods with high starch content, which have been cooked above 120 degrees centigrade, like crisps, bread, breakfast cereals, biscuits, it's crackers, cakes and coffee. That's it. That's breakfast gone, isn't it? That's breakfast done for. And um, uh, so it can, in fact, uh, coffee, by the way, is in there as a result of ro roasting the beans. Um, it can also be produced during home cooking when high starch foods such as potatoes, chips, bread, parsnips are baked, roasted, grilled or fried at a high temperature. Um, and so we still haven't got the answer yet. Um, all they're saying is, uh, the Food Standards Agency is saying, as part of a new campaign, it's advising people to make small changes to the way they cook and prepare food, saying, go for a golden yellow colour when toasting, frying, baking or roasting starchy foods like potatoes, bread and uh, root vegetables. Don't keep raw potatoes in the fridge. Store them in a cool, dark place above 6 degrees centigrade. Instead, follow the cooking instructions carefully when heating oven chips, pizzas, roast 
roast potatoes and parsnips. Eat a healthy balanced diet that includes five portions of vegetables and fruit per day, as well as starchy carbohydrates. Um, and uh, research in animals has shown that the chemical is toxic to DNA. It causes mutations. In other words, it, it can cause cancer. So scientists assume that the same is true in people, although there is not yet any conclusive evidence. Well, I suppose it's no uh, great hardship, is it, to uh, uh, try and follow uh, some of the, uh, well, all of those uh, wise uh, precautions. Uh, it doesn't make uh, an enormous difference, just a little bit of difference, but then, hey, uh, our health is uh, much, much more important. And one of the things uh, that we're always interested in is little experiments. And uh, one of the gems that uh, we had on our programme a while back, and this was uh, done by um, our colleague uh, Anthony Perveda, who used to co-present uh, co this programme. He interviewed uh, a very fine fellow uh, called uh, Nick Harrigan, a fantastic uh, science communicator, Nick Harrigan. He's a physicist. And um, this was at, uh, I believe, at the uh, BA uh, Science uh, Festival, the British Association Science Festival. And it's uh, called the Pint Glass Cloud Chamber Experiment. And it's all to do uh, with actually, and you'll find this maybe hard to believe, but it's all to do with finding um, subatomic evidence of subatomic particles uh, using little more than uh, a pint glass and uh, something else which is very, very cold. So this is Anthony Perveda uh, from this show uh, interviewing Nick Harrigan about how you can see subatomic particles armed with only a pint glass and uh, some uh, solid uh, carbon dioxide. Yeah, it's what we call a public liability nightmare. So this is basically a fire extinguisher attached to a kind of device that lets me create uh, dry ice. Oh, so yeah. very, very cold dry ice, uh, yeah, very, very cold. Kind of steaming ice. up there, he's letting it out. Okay, so what's going to happen next? Right, well, what we're going to try and do is, you see, I've been walking around this festival and I've discovered that not many people have ever seen a subatomic particle, and I think that's a little bit of a travesty. Um, like any good science experiment, this is going to use quite basic stuff, so we're going to do all of this inside a pint glass, which is going to be where this takes place. And we're going to set up the conditions we need for these subatomic particles to form a trail. So there's two things we need. We need it to be very cold, and that's why I'm making some dry ice from this fire extinguisher. And we also need, the subatomic particles need to be able to interact with the air in such a way that they leave a trail behind them. And to do that, I am gonna add to the mix something I have in my bag, which is very, very strong alcohol. Now this isn't the kind of thing you'd normally find in the pub, in fact I wouldn't recommend that you drink this, but this is what we're going to use to help us see these subatomic particles. So what we've got now is at the top of the pint glass we've got alcohol and it's turned into a vapour, so in the air we've got lots and lots of alcohol molecules, and then at the bottom we've got it sitting on the dry ice with a kind of piece of a metal plate in between, so that the air in the bottom of the pint glass is getting like really, really cold. So these molecules of alcohol, as they fall down in the glass and get to the and they get so cold that they kind of start grabbing together and they will form tiny little droplets. So what we're hoping here is that you can see, I don't know, can you just see that there's like a fog? Yeah, there's yeah. 
and it kind of looks that. cool. It's like a, it looks a bit like a snow globe because um, what you're seeing are droplets of alcohol. Oh, it's more and more, yeah. Yeah, it's coming down more and more. But but if if we're lucky enough to get a subatomic particle flying through this glass, as it goes through, it will rip apart the air molecules in, that are in its way, in its way, in its path. And as it does that, those tiny pieces of air molecules do a really good job of attracting the alcohol molecules in the air and making these droplets bigger. So if we get a subatomic particle going through, it will leave a trail of like much denser drops and it will look like a little contrail like a plane would leave. So all we have to do now is wait. And this is going to be a long wait, so you want to <laughs> Well, we are inside. I don't know if does that affect it at all? It can a little bit, because uh, amazingly, um, the kind of subatomic particles that you mostly see in this don't come from the Earth at all. They're what we call cosmic rays. And they have most likely come from most of the way over the other side of the universe from a very energetic galaxy that has been powerful enough to rip atoms apart, throw over these subatomic particles that have travelled at close to the speed of light through most of space all the way to get to Earth just in time to hit this and hopefully leave a trial eventually. So basically... Um there. Did you see one? Yes, it's like suddenly a line is drawn across. In oh, the, awesome! Like the, yeah, the little particles that are floating, they all come together in a line really quickly and then disappear. Oh, sweet. And the pattern goes, yeah, it was down. Awesome. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, wow. Hopefully. Oh, did you see that one? Yes. I saw that one. Yeah. That, was, that, was, that was legit. That was definitely that legit. That was legit. That's a legit science. This is, so this is a cloud chamber? It is exactly a cloud chamber. I saw a little tiny one then. Um, it's just, as far as I'm aware, and I might be wrong to say this, also a little one, it's the world's simplest cloud chamber. <laughs> also a long one then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was... That was there just is loads now. Oh, wow, this is the best I've had it working for ages. It's fantastic. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, scientists were doing. There was another one. Scientists were doing this uh, in the early 20th century. Was yeah, it around so then they started doing it? The first ones that were kind of built were uh, by a guy called Wilson. And he, so here we've made it very cold. He instead dropped the pressure very quickly. So in he, oh, that was a long one. Did you see that one? Yeah. That was yeah. awesome. Um, he sort of quickly expanded a sort of chamber and got a photo of when he did it and he'd get lots of tracks. This way is a slightly more modern version. Oh, that was a huge one. A slightly more modern version, but um, where we've called things instead, because now, of course... And another. Wow. Big one down the middle. So this is about the time when normally we get good ones. Yeah. It's a li little bit spectacular, in fact. Oh, they go thank, across. thank really... you. Wow. Oh, that was oh, one there. That was yeah. cool. So, so the crazy thing is that when you see those, you're actually, or the chances are, you're seeing something that's come most of the way across the universe. We do get subatomic particles in natural radioactive decay on Earth, but it's a lot less likely. So, this is basically the world's cheapest cosmic ray detector. Amazing. I mean, well, you know, we've, we've peered at its upside down pint glass for so long now that everyone <laughs> around us has, has moved some distance. However, I'm really glad we did it. Thank you so much, Nick, for showing us that. No problem, anytime. <laughs> And that was Anthony uh, Perveda uh, talking to uh, Nick Harrigan. What a what a fantastic experiment! Um, we sort of think, well, you know, this all seems very very uh, uh, far fetched. That you know, just just uh, using a pint glass and uh, something very very cold, you'd be able to uh, devise an experiment where ordinary people, without the uh, benefit of fantastic equipment in the laboratory, would be able to see subatomic particles. But yes, you can. So we'd love to. 
uh, hear from you uh, uh, here at Love and Science and BCFM uh, if you have got any uh, uh, sort of uh, experiments like that that you'd like to do on the show or tell us about or maybe possibly uh, we could come to you and uh, record or you could record and send to us I'm sure we could uh, work something out. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio Indeed you are on BCFM Radio 93.2 FM or bcfmradio.com and it is always uh, an excellent thing uh, to have your company Now uh, let's get back to a little bit more uh, science news and um, I wanted to uh, talk about a story which is is a curious one it says Cambridge scientists uh, consider fake news vaccine now it sounds like you know somebody's going to come along with a syringe and uh, give you a jab and then you won't (laughs) won't be susceptible to uh, fake news anymore but that's uh, not not what it means Um, there's a University of Cambridge study Uh, which is very interested in uh, psychological tools and uh, how people absorb uh, information. And uh, they have suggested that if you preemptively expose people to a small dose of misinformation and tell them that it's misinformation, then people become more and more sensitive to it. Now, um, Certainly, this is uh, true for uh, journalists. Um, I I certainly remember when I first started working uh, for the BBC many years ago as a a researcher in London. And um, one of the things that uh, I learned the hard way was that not to believe what people say to you. Uh, That's in the very best sense. So people would phone up and they'd tell you a story. And it may be that it was just a self-serving story that they wanted you to take up and uh, promote uh, uh, through, uh, you know, some uh, BBC program, some some news outlet or something like that. And you had to be super careful. And the big question is, why is this person saying this to me? And today, of course, we have become, we've realized that there are an enormous amount of uh, fake stories around fake news. And and, uh, of course, um, this is something which has uh, the, helped the Trump uh, campaign absolutely uh, enormously. You may have uh, read uh, that um, uh, the Pope supported Donald Trump, when in fact uh, he didn't, or the Democratic, his Democratic rival Hillary Clinton sold weapons to the so- so-called Islamic State group, and uh, millions of people read this, and quite a lot of them uh, believed uh, these stories. And uh, what the uh, group is saying is that it is possible, and they te- they say this in the Journal of Global Challenges, it, it, where they conducted an experiment. It is possible uh, to uh, give people a little bit of fake news to tell them that it's fake news and the effect may well be to inoculate people against fake news. In other words, you just take a pause and you go, well, I would love that to be true if it supports your point of view or that's that's horrifying if that's true, if if it's something that you really wouldn't like to hear. But instead of going ahead and just believing it, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, where did this come from? Can we be sure that this is true? And um, is it possible for us to uh, just take a little bit uh, uh, of a longer look at this story just to see if if, uh, if it's working. Uh, German officials, it seems, have reportedly proposed creating a special government uh, unit to combat fake news in the run-up to their uh, general election. 
and um, a senior Labour MP just last week warned that British politics risks being infected by the contagion of fake news. So now, although uh, lying, making stories up, placing stories, uh, fake stories of all sorts have always been uh, part of uh, uh, news fair ever since uh, 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 newspapers and news outlets began. Uh, we're finding it on an absolutely uh, unprecedented scale and uh, it's causing lots of problems. It may even get presidents elected. So uh, we need to be very, very careful about it. Uh, just before we go today, remember, I'm Remember, we had a slightly shorter show today because um, we had some technical issues. Uh, but uh, you can hear the rest of this program uh, if you go to loveandscience.podbean. Uh, that's its stripped-down version without music. Or uh, you can go to uh, uh, bcfmradio.com and find shows and find Love and Science, and you can listen to uh, earlier uh, versions, uh, earlier uh, editions of this program. Just before we go, uh, Vicky Gill uh, from the BBC has a, a story online about the world's primates saying that they face an extinction crisis with 60% of species now uh, threatened with extinction. Um, uh, that's uh, according to uh, various pieces of research. A global study involving more than 30 scientists assessed the conservation status of more than 500 individual species. This revealed that 75% of species have populations that are declining, and the findings have been published in the Journal of Science Advances, Journal Science Advances. Um, uh, forests are being destroyed when primate habit is converted to industrial agriculture culture leaving primates with nowhere to live they're hunted for meat uh, they're taken as pets or uh, for body parts um, uh, all kinds of things forest clearance uh, for livestock and cattle ranching uh, oil and gas drilling and so on and it's to do with our domination of the planet and the taking over of space from other species so that's a very very sad story and um uh, it could uh, uh, cause all kinds of difficulties uh, if uh, we don't deal with this, not least the tragic loss of uh, our primate population. Anyway, it's time now. Uh, uh, it's the end of the show. So don't forget to uh, stay tuned uh, for John Ford uh, after this. Uh, John's uh, getting Bristol home. It's been a pleasure to have uh, you uh, uh, listening to this and have your company. Don't forget to join us again next week when Andrew uh, will be uh, with me. And have yourselves a very good evening.